This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, December 23rd, 2022, episode 98, concerning Elgar the Hermit and Divine Dinner Delivery. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We've had a loose tradition here in the Thanksgiving to Christmas season of featuring what we might call, for want of a better word, cozy content. Texts that somehow evoke notions of home or family or festivity, along with the occasional Christmas ghost story. Oh, and on that subject, newer listeners might enjoy going back to episode 49 concerning a medieval Marley's ghost, uh, which is one of my personal favorites. Well... Today's text has all of the above, plus a message about gratitude, if appreciate what God has given you or else counts as a message about gratitude. We're going to hear The Life of Elgar the Hermit, as preserved in the Liber Landavensis, also known as the Book of Llandaf, the same manuscript that gave us St. Samson's encounter with the witchy Theomaca last episode. Elgar's early life has some exciting turns that I won't spoil, but as the title of his narrative suggests, he ends up as a hermit on the island of Bardsey in the late 11th century. Bardsey, or as it's called in Welsh, Innis Inchli, lies off the coast of the Llyn Peninsula. And let me pause right there just to note that, yes, both of those names have the Welsh double L, the voiceless alveolar lateral fricative, that I talked about in episode 95. Uh, We're going to run into it frequently today, and I'm going to try to give it my best Welsh pronunciation, and hopefully it won't be too cringeworthy. Uh, I will just acknowledge that I struggle to get a consistent sound, so it might slide around a bit from word to word, and in particular, the transition from the of to chlandaf in Book of Chlandaf, I'm finding especially tricky, so please bear with me. Oh, and as an added excuse, I guess, here's a detail about this particular phoneme that I didn't mention last time. While it's common in the languages of indigenous Americans, uh, like the Navajo, and also appears in Zulu and some other African languages uh, and Asian languages, especially in Taiwan, and furthermore, it features in biblical Hebrew, it is nonetheless an extremely rare sound in European languages. In fact, Welsh is pretty much it, uh, except for some appearance of it or a related sound in Scandinavian languages. Oh, and Tolkien used it in his constructed Elvish languages, but I suppose those are not technically European languages. Okay, back to our geographical introduction. Bardsey is a small island, about 440 acres or 0.7 square miles in size. In recent scholarly literature, Uh, It seems to be of little interest except as a prime habitat for studying the ecology of bird populations. In modern times, it hit its highest recorded population with 132 people in 1881. As of 2019, only 11 people called the island home, and of those, only four were year-round residents. But in the Middle Ages, Bardsey possessed a considerable amount of spiritual capital. In the 6th century, an abbey, St. Mary's, was founded there, or at least later traditions claim it was founded then. We don't actually have any documentary evidence for it until the early 11th century, and the only remaining structure today is a ruined tower built in the 13th century. 
St. Mary's Abbey lasted in one form or another until Henry VIII dissolved the lesser monasteries in 1536, though it has remained a pilgrimage site, being a terminus on the North Wales Pilgrim's Way. Medieval pilgrims also made their way to Bardsey. As we will hear, legend had it that 20,000 saints were buried in this little more than two-thirds square mile, or 1.8 square kilometer, spot of land. While that figure probably is indeed legendary in its quantity, it must be said that during construction projects in the 19th century, a great many human bones were uncovered, uh, as well as a number of stone kist burials. So it certainly has been a site of significant interments, uh, perhaps since the Neolithic period. Before we get to Elgar himself, I thought I'd open with a medieval traveler's description from only about a hundred years after the time of Elgar. While touring Wales with Baldwin, Archbishop of Canterbury, on a mission to drum up recruits for the Third Crusade, our old friend Geraldus Cambrensis, or Gerald of Wales, wrote out the following account. We continued our journey over the Traith Mar and the Traith Bachan, that is, the greater and the smaller arm of the sea, where two stone castles have newly been erected. One called Dodraith, belonging to the sons of Conan, situated in Aifioneth towards the northern mountains, the other named Cam Madrin, the property of the sons of Owen, built on the other side of the river towards the sea, on the headland Hlein. Traith, in the Welsh language, signifies a tract of sand flooded by the tides and left bare when the sea ebbs. We had before passed over the noted rivers, the Desinith between the Maw and Traithmaur, and the Arthro between Traithmaur and Traithbachan. We slept that night at Nevin on the eve of Palm Sunday, where the Archdeacon, after long inquiry and research, is said to have found Merlin Silvestris. Beyond Hlein, there is a small island inhabited by very religious monks called Calebes or Kolidei. This island, either from the wholesomeness of its climate, owing to its vicinity to Ireland, or rather from some miracle obtained by the merits of the saints, had this wonderful peculiarity, that the oldest people die first, because diseases are uncommon and scarcely any die except from extreme old age. Its name is Inchli in the Welsh and Bardsey in the Saxon language, and very many bodies of saints are said to be buried there, and amongst them that of Daniel, Bishop of Bangor. The Archbishop having, by his sermon the next day, induced many persons to take the cross, we proceeded towards Bangor. Passing through Carnarvon, that is, the castle of Arvon, it is called Arvon, the province opposite to Mon, because it is so situated with respect to the island of Mona. Our road, leading us to a steep valley with many broken ascents and descents, we dismounted from our horses and proceeded on foot, rehearsing, as it were, by agreement, some experiments of our intended pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Having traversed the valley and reached the opposite side with considerable fatigue, the archbishop, to rest himself and recover his breath, sat down on an oak which had been torn up by the violence of the winds, and relaxing into a pleasantry highly laudable in a person of his approved gravity, thus addressed his attendants. Who amongst you in this company can now delight our wearied ears by whistling? Which is not easily done by people out of breath. He affirming that he could, if he thought fit, 
The sweet notes are heard in an adjoining wood of a bird, which some said was a woodpecker, and others, more correctly, an Oriolus. The woodpecker is called in French speck, and with its strong bill perforates oak trees. The other bird is called Oriolus from the golden tints of its feathers, and at certain seasons utters a sweet whistling note instead of a song. Some persons having remarked that the nightingale was never heard in this country, the archbishop, with a significant smile, replied, The nightingale followed wise counsel and never came into Wales, but we, unwise counsel, who have penetrated and gone through it. We remained that night at Bangor, the metropolitan see of North Wales, and were well entertained by the bishop of the diocese. On the next day, mass being celebrated by the archbishop before the high altar, the bishop of that see, at the instance of the archbishop and other persons, more importunate than persuasive, was compelled to take the cross, to the general concern of all his people of both sexes, who expressed their grief on this occasion by loud and lamentable vociferations. One does almost feel sorry for the Bishop of Bangor, who throws a nice welcoming shindig for his prestigious guests and winds up publicly coerced into going on crusade. But back to our little island. Gerald highlights three of Bardsey's claims to fame in the Middle Ages. One, the graves of the saints, which we already mentioned. Two, the legend that the body of Merlin was buried there. And three, the spiritual fame of its hermits, the calibes, meaning those who live alone, that, that shares a root with celibate, or the kolidei, the spouses of God or companions of God. The meaning is those who were devoted to no other companion but God. In English, you sometimes find this word translated as the Chaldees. The prototypical Christian hermits were the Egyptian ascetics of the 3rd century, the desert fathers such as St. Anthony, uh, as well as the monks of the Thebaid, one of whom we saw summoning a demon in episode 89, Interview with a Devil. This was Eremitic monasticism, living a solitary life in a remote location, uh, such as the Egyptian desert. Greek eremos, from which Eremitic is derived, means desert, and that same root is behind English hermit. In the 5th century, as Christianity continued its spread throughout the provinces of the Roman Empire, hermits along the coastlines of Europe, lacking desert mountains to retreat to, opted instead for islands. George Thomas Stokes argues that this fortuitously coincided with a general population shift to more centralized locations in villages and towns, and a consequent depopulation of the more remote areas of the countryside. So, as the common people relocated into towns, the hermits found newly available space for themselves in the countryside and on small islands that were too inconvenient for any farmer who wanted to trade their produce and not just have a subsistence living. But subsistence is precisely all the hermits required. What worked on the coast of France also worked in the Irish Sea and the North Sea, with a number of early Celtic and British monasteries arising out of island hermitages. Indeed, one of the kind of curious features of this eremitic monasticism is that the hermits attract followers impressed by their spiritual dedication, and so you end up with a bunch of like-minded people all living on the same desert mountain or the same windswept island, and suddenly the solitary life starts to become a communal life. 
The hermits begin joining together, initially just for the celebration of Mass, but then that leads to full-time communal living in cloistered communities. Jargon-wise, this is the shift described by the distinction between hermits and Cenobites. We have such sights to show you. No, not those Cenobites, uh, though this is where Clive Barker took the name for his pleasure-slash-pain demons in Hellraiser. A monastic Cenobite is just one who lives in community with others under a rule or order. Cenobite comes from Greek koinos, common, plus vios, life. Koinovios, common life. Assuming the legendary history is true, and there's no reason not to, uh, at least in its broad strokes, there was some Christian religious community on Bardsey from the 600s onwards, most likely in the form of a kind of loose-knit hermit collective. And even when St. Mary's Abbey was established, the island seemingly still hosted both the cloister and individual hermitages, as we will see with Elgar. And let's go on and get to his story. Now, the story occurred in the late 11th century and was written down a few decades later in the early 12th, but to me it feels much older in its motifs. If you told me Elgar was a character from that 7th century settlement of the island, I'd believe you. His story has elements in common with both St. Patrick and the Desert Fathers, and I think that actually is part of its intended appeal. Elgar is a figure out of time, even for an early 12th century audience. He is a man with one foot in the realm of spirits, and maybe just one toe still grounding him in our world. His out-of-placeness is what makes him this compelling, mysterious, and ultimately saintly figure. But before I go any further, let's hear the story itself, as it appears in the Book of Sandaf, as translated from the Latin by W. J. Rees. There was a man named Elgar, a native of England and born in Devonshire, who, in his infancy, was taken prisoner by a set of pirates, and, as was usual, conveyed to Ireland, where for some time he led a servile life. At length, his master dying, he was released from captivity and came into the possession of the king, when he was again obliged to bear the yoke of servitude. And so far that during the reign of King Roderick, the grandson of Conquer, he performed with his own hands the office of executioner on those who had been condemned to suffer death by the judgment of the regal court. Being greatly dissatisfied and leading a life contrary to his inclination, in grief and sorrow and among his enemies, he hoped for the mercy of God to release him by death. But he at length obtained his liberty. Having performed penance suitable to his state, he left the country altogether, and being mindful of his misfortunes, embraced the life of a sailor, when, suffering shipwreck, he landed on the Isle of Bardsey, a place which, according to the British custom, was called the Rome of Britain, on account of the dangerous passage by sea to it, and its distance, being situated at the extremity of the kingdom, and for its sanctity and dignity, because there were buried therein the bodies of twenty thousand holy confessors and martyrs. It was surrounded on all sides by the sea, Having a lofty promontory on the eastern side, its western coast was plain and fertile with a sweet flowing fountain. It was partly maritime and abounded with dolphins, 
was completely free from serpents and frogs, and no one died therein in the lifetime of a brother who was older than himself. When he had a knowledge of the fertility, and especially of the sanctity of the place, he commended the sailors to Christ and resolved to lead the life of a hermit, and being uninstructed from his having been brought up without education, he daily reaped improvement. Having spent the space of seven years with a religious community of brethren, and sometimes in solitude, led a holy, glorious, and chaste life with scant food, slight clothing, and an emaciated countenance, he, in the following seven years, when all North Wales was desolated, dwelt in his hermitage, and had nothing for his maintenance except the support which he received through the providence of God, from the fish of the sea, and what the eagles, or, as we may say, angels, brought to him. On a certain day, the teacher Caradog came to see whether he were alive or dead, and to his joy, finding him living, said to him, O beloved, who has maintained thee, being so completely separated from all mankind? No one, I am certain, from our country, which is desolated and for a long time estranged from thee through want of communication by sea. These and other inquiries having been made, the good man, who is the most learned of all whales, being skilled in the knowledge of both kinds of law, ancient and modern, descended from a noble family, and eminent in secular learning, with bended knees before the holy person, and with sighs and the shedding of tears, strongly entreated him to give him an account of his life, which was unknown to man and known only to God. Having been prevailed on at length by entreaty, he related to him the particulars of his solitary life, as to his lord and master. Now, dearly beloved Father, I will make known to thee the mercy that has been shown to me, not on account of my very inconsiderable merit, but through the bounty and goodness of God, who has always given comfort to me. Holy spirits, assuming to themselves with divine concurrence the likeness of corporeal substance, according to the belief supported by Scripture, which testifies that a spirit hath not flesh and bones, do constantly day and night administer to me as one poor and infirm and suffering shipwreck, through whose care I know not the want of joy and prosperity, nor the presence of penury and poverty. They always declare to me what is true, and always promise what is right, describing to me the present life to be as a flower in the field, and the future as the odor of balm, comforting me that I might not faint in the way, who, having vanquished the enemy, should be rewarded with a heavenly crown." Although separated from me when they meet together, I know them, by our frequent intercourse with each other, to be Dubricius, Archbishop of Western Britain, Daniel, Bishop of the Church of Bangor, St. Patern, and many others whose bodies are buried in this island. One of them told me, on a certain time, Go tomorrow to the cave of the Confessor Greet, and when there, fatigued by the journey and intent on prayer, lie down, and God will give thee wherewith in those days thou mayest sustain thy body, and thus on every third day in the morning God will give thee a fish from the rock, although it be apart from the sea and elevated many paces above it. The fish which was sent me in this manner at length became tiresome and the taste disagreeable, and my appetite failing, owing to the meager and aquatic nature of its daily food, it was taken away, and I received nothing in consequence of the complaint which I made. Another time I was told, Go to the harbor, and thou wilt have a sea fish of great size, wherewith thou mayest be maintained. And I pierced, with a small knife, 
the side of the fish I found, which, feeling the wound, leaped and precipitated itself into the sea, completely escaping out of my hands. And, reflecting on my hasty and hostile act, I repented having inflicted the wound and returned unprovided to my residence. And after some time, my appetite inciting me, I sought for aid as usual. On the following night, the holy persons appeared and said, O thou incredulous person, why wert thou so hasty? What God has sent to thee, he will not take away. What he has taken from thee today, he will restore tomorrow. Go to the same place, and there thou wilt find the said fish dead, and also the knife. And it was so. Another time, when hunger was pressing me, the accustomed person said, Go thy usual road. And I went, and found a large white stag, and I said, What need have I of so much food, and of which I have not been accustomed to partake? I returned to the oratory, and, as usual, they said to their servant, The Lord will give thee nothing else for food this time besides what thou hast found today. And returning to the harbor, I found the stag again, which was food for me for some considerable time. Sometimes the eagles administered to me, by divine appointment, of the fishes of the sea in the usual manner, and as was necessary, with likewise some herbs and water and small sea fish. These, and many other particulars having been related, the teacher Caradog hastened to the harbor and said to his brother, O pious, O beloved, leave the solitude that thou mayest be comforted and restored to thy former state, and thou shalt receive from me for some time the comforts of food and clothing. Having heard these words, he hastened to the oratory, and having received an answer from the holy persons, said, O Father, I have not so much liberty nor rashness as to follow thee any more in this life. Depart, brother, with great speed while the wind is favorable, on giving to thee my small blessing and receiving from thee thy large one. After these things he led his life, present to the Lord and unknown to man. And having prepared a grave for himself in the oratory, he lay down close by it and expired. While the body was yet warm, some sailors came to the place and buried what they found there ready for sepulture. On Friday, the 7th of May, in the year 1120, being leap year, his teeth were removed from the island on the same day that the relics of St. Dubricius were translated to Schandorf by Urban the Bishop, with the consent of Ralph, Archbishop of Canterbury, and the assent of David, Bishop of Bangor, and Griffith, King of North Wales, and the applause of all the clergy and people. And on Sunday, the 28th day of May, they were received into the church of Hlandav. So, that's the life of Elgar the Hermit of Bardsey. And this is pretty much everything we know about Elgar. It is very likely that the source for the text of his Vita was the Caradoc mentioned, about whom we have a bit more information than we do for Elgar. This Caradoc is generally taken to be Caradoc of Khan Carvan, and a nice survey of what we know about this figure is presented in a 1938 Speculum article by J.S.P. Tatlock. Tatlock notes that since Caradoc identifies himself in later life as of Schlankarven, that means he was no longer at Schlankarven when he took on that epithet. 
Now, this is the same idea we talked about ages ago concerning Marie de France, who we know lived in England because you wouldn't be de France if you were currently en France. Sean uh, Carvin was a religious house of canons that was located in what is now Glamorgan, about eight miles from the city of Chandav. The Thancarvan religious community seems to have broken up around 1086 in the wake of the turmoil and desolations that came with the Norman conquest. The invasion of the kingdom of Gwyneth by the Normans and their allies is the catastrophe that hits after Elgar's first seven years on Bardsey and left, quote, all North Wales desolated, end quote. The history of Griffith gives the following description of what happened. Quote, then arose much evil and tribulation in Gwyneth, and in the midst of this, after a short time, Hugh, Earl of Chester, and many other princes, that is to say, Robert of Rudland, Warren of Shrewsbury, Walter, Earl of Hereford, assembled the largest host in the world of horsemen and footmen, and took with them Gorgon Apsachish and the men of Poes, and traversed the mountains until they came into Chlein. In this cantred they encamped for a night, daily destroying and plundering and murdering. They left behind them a great slaughter of corpses. Then the country was a desert for eight years. Then the inhabitants of this country scattered portionless and needy into the world. Many of them went as exiles into other lands through long years, and scarcely any of them came to their own country. This was the first plague and rough advent of the Normans to the land of Gwyneth after coming to England. End quote. In the wake of such devastation, Tatlock notes that any surviving populace would probably put bringing food and charity to their local hermits at a pretty low priority. So Elgar faced a very real isolation in those seven years, and it's not all that absurd to think that a visiting delegation from Van Carven might be genuinely surprised to discover him still alive, a bit like finding Ben Gunn on Treasure Island. It's likely that Caradoc left the House of Canons at Clancarvin at about that same tumultuous time of invasion when he was still a young man, though clearly already educated and worthy of the title of teacher and master. He spent his latter years in Glastonbury Abbey, where he wrote a well-known, if largely mythical, life of Gildas, the 6th century historian. But he may well have had an interlude between Clancarvin and Glastonbury at Clandaf Cathedral, or at least significant interaction with its community, where he likely passed on the tale of his encounter with the strange, spirit-guided hermit of Bardsey. Tatlock suggests that it's probable that the life of Elgar was first written down close to the time that his teeth were translated to Chandaf Cathedral, essentially as a kind of record of provenance for those relics. And then that text finds itself copied along with other significant records and narratives, like the life of St. Samson, into the Book of Chlandaf, a codex compiled in the 1130s and designed to advance the interests and status of the See of Chlandaf. The Book of Chlandaf, also known as the Liber Landavensis, or the Register Book of the Cathedral of Chlandaf, has a bit of an interesting history as an artifact. We presume that it reached its final form in the early 1130s because the last event it notes occurred in 1132, and it says nothing about the death of Urban, Bishop of Chlandaf, in 1133, an important figure whose passing surely would have been noted if anything were still being added to the manuscript at that time. So, in fact, we can rather safely pinpoint the completion of the work to late 1132, 
early 1133. The book remained at the cathedral for about 500 years, until the English Civil War of the 1640s. Around that time, one John Selden, a legal scholar on the parliamentarian side with an interest in medieval manuscripts, appears to have purchased the book from the cathedral. Why would the cathedral give it up? Our translator, Rees, suggests that in the chaos of the war, it might have been feared that the book was at risk of loss or destruction, and it would be safer in the hands of Selden than in the cathedral. It also had a brass figure on the cover of a saint or of Christ. Uh, There's been some debate over the identification. Uh, But that makes me wonder if that might have made it a target for Puritan iconoclasts keen to destroy idolatrous images, or really any English soldier with an itch to smash up Welsh treasures. We don't really know anything about this transaction between the cathedral and Selden, at least not in the work of the scholars I read. So we don't know if it was prized from the cathedral by extortionate means, or if they were anxious for the income and eagerly shopping the book around to antiquarians. Anyway, Selden gets it and adds it to his library. He dies in 1654, and his library is made a gift to Oxford University. But the university's actual acquisition of those books becomes a rather protracted process, and they seem to have remained in Wales for several years. Eventually, most of Selden's collection is added to the Bodleian Library, but the book of Llandaff was waylaid. Just months after Selden's death, the book was in the possession of Sir John Vaughan, one of Selden's executors. A different Vaughan, Robert Vaughan, a leading collector of Welsh manuscripts, wrote to Sir John seeking the loan of the book so that he might transcribe it. Negotiations over the loan seem to have been carried out off and on over several years, A letter exists from Sir John that confirms that the loan was approved, though, quote, I am required to take caution for restitution by bond to prevent accidents that may happen on death or otherwise, which I suppose you will not grumble at, the property belonging to such a corporation as the university, end quote. Though we don't have any solid documentation, the loan clearly went through. A description of the book appears in the catalogue of the library at Robert Vaughn's estate of Hengort, a name Chaucer fans might recognize, as there's a particularly famous manuscript of the Canterbury Tales from that collection. Here's the catalogue entry. Quote, 162, Liber Landavensis, from Mr. Selden's library, folio, in parchment, three inches thick, having Tylo's picture in brass on the lid thereof, formerly overlaid with gold and silver, but now almost worn out by age. End quote. We also have Vaughn's very fine transcription, which proves that he did have access to the book. But here's where our story takes a bit of a mysterious turn. If the actual loan of the book was rather poorly documented, precisely what happened to it after Robert Vaughn's death is even murkier. Indeed, for Rees, our translator in 1840, the book was considered lost, and his edition is based solely on the transcripts. For many a manuscript, that's where the story would sadly end. Luckily for us, the book of Llandaff did not remain lost. And it probably wasn't, strictly speaking, lost in the first place. It was just being quietly held beyond the reach of Reese's scholarship. It seems the book somehow made its way from Vaughn's library. Oh, and let me pause here just to note that Robert Vaughn is a very important figure. His library essentially became the seed for the collection of the National Library of Wales. Uh, But, resuming, 
The book turns up in the library of another Welsh antiquarian, Robert Davis. It was passed down through Davis's descendants until it came to Philip Tatton Davis Cook, Esquire, who deposited it, at last, in the 1940s in the National Library of Wales, and the library formally acquired it in 1959. I don't know if there was ever any fuss kicked up by the Bodleian over possession of the manuscript, uh, or at least making good on that 17th century bond, but I imagine the optics of letting a Welsh treasure stay in Wales would override any other rather sketchy ownership claims. I thought I'd wrap up our main topic by reading Rhys's dedication to his edition of the Book of Llandaf. It brings in a figure associated with Victorian Christmas, Prince Albert, the father, or rather co-parent, of the modern Christmas tree in England, uh, as it was the German influence of Queen Victoria's court and family that put that custom in the palace, and of course that's what made it fashionable for Victorian Britons and thence to the Anglophone world in general to this day, uh, at least in the simplified version of that story. Anyway, Rhys dedicates his book to Prince Albert. Here's what he writes. The musical underscore is a nocturne by Chopin, which was also composed in the year 1840 and performed here by Luis Saro. To His Royal Highness Prince Albert, Duke of Saxe, Prince of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, KG and Field Marshal. Sir, as editor of the first work published by the Welsh Manuscript Society, I venture most respectfully on behalf of the members of that institution to express their very grateful thanks for the honor vouchsafed to them in being permitted to inscribe this volume with your royal highness's illustrious name, whereby it is specially placed under your royal protection. By thus patronizing the publication of the inedited remains of an ancient and distinguished nation, your royal highness has not only evinced your regard for the interests of literature, but also called forth the lively gratitude of a devoted people who have long been eminent for their attachment to their legitimate sovereigns, whose scepter is now held by their beloved queen, the illustrious patroness of the society, which lays its first fruits before your royal highness, remembering with loyal pride that her most gracious majesty has in her veins the best blood of the ancient princes of Wales, in addition to every other claim to their dutiful affection that your royal highness may long continue in the enjoyment of health to assist your august consort in the execution of every laudable and beneficent design is the heartfelt prayer of, sir, your royal highness's most obedient and humble servant, William Jenkins Rees. In addition to the patronage of Victoria and Albert and other English royals, we find a slightly more surprising patron named in the Roll of Honor on the following page of Rees's book. Quote, his Imperial Highness, the Tsarevich, the Prince Alexander of Russia. End quote. As that title indicates, in 1840, Alexander was not yet Tsar, merely in line to the throne of his father, Nicholas. And Prince Albert himself was newly ensconced in his title, as he and Victoria had married that same year. Now, the dedicatory information to this edition of the Book of Slandoff may also capture some history of royal passion. Tsarevich Alexander visited England one year earlier in 1839, where Scuttlebutt has it the young queen and her 20-year-old visitor hit it off, maybe even had a bit of a love affair, though a doomed one since the political realities simply would not allow two heirs to major thrones to marry. But imagine if they had, 
We might have had a joint Anglo-Russian empire going into the second half of the 19th century, which certainly would have transformed the geopolitical arrangement of the world in the 20th. The book also includes a list of donors and subscribers with the amounts of their donation, so we know that Alexander donates a whopping 100 pounds, which would be around 12,000 pounds in 1840, uh, at least according to one historical cost calculator. That sum was the largest donated of those listed. The next highest was 50 pounds from His Grace the Duke of Newcastle. The royals themselves don't appear in that list of subscribers. Uh, I don't know if that's because their patronage was not actually financial in nature, or if it would simply not be decorous to publish such crass information, though I suppose it's fine for all the foreign and lesser nobility. Anyway, this would be a great segue to talk about the importance of patrons and how you can support us through Patreon, uh, but we have a riddle to get to before such business. Today's riddle is one of Aldhelm's riddles, originally composed in Latin verse, and here translated by James Hall Pittman. On high crags where the blue seas pound the reefs, and briny billows swell the heaving flood, mechanic art has built me, great and high, for ships a guiding finger to reveal the open channel. Yet I never roam the level sea in ships of many oars that cut a carving furrow through the deep. But pointing from my pinnacle, I lead those wanderers buffeted by mountain waves safely to shore, lifting a fiery brand, for high upon my tower a torch I set, when wintry clouds conceal the flaming stars. I don't think this one's actually all that difficult. Uh, It's a fairly literal riddle, indeed more just a description than a riddle per se. A thing constructed by the seacoast that guides ships with a torch in bad weather. The answer is, in Latin, ferus editissima, or loftiest lighthouse. One of the features of Bardsey Island is its lighthouse which was constructed in 1821. It's not a notably tall lighthouse, but it does stand at a respectable 30 meters, or nearly 100 feet in height, and it's architecturally unusual amongst British lighthouses for being a square tower in its floor plan. So it has four walls rather than being cylindrical or more polyhedral, as we usually picture lighthouses being. Sadly, I I guess from a nostalgic point of view, There is no hermit lighthouse keeper, the light having been automated in 1987. And to bring us back to one of the first things we learned about Bardsey Island today, apparently the lighthouse is the cause of many, quote, bird casualties, end quote, since it is positioned on a migratory route. I couldn't find out exactly what causes the casualties. As best as I can tell, it's just birds smacking into the tower. It's not like they're getting burned up in the beam of light or anything that dramatic. But the lighthouse is painted in red and white stripes, and it's a lighthouse, so if the birds aren't seeing it, I I kind of feel like that's on the birds. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has tried to reduce the hazard by building perches and putting floodlights on the tower, but reportedly to no avail. So I guess we have to choose between shipwrecks and bird wrecks. Anyway, that concludes our Christmas season episode. I know there's only a few hours left, really, before Christmas, but I wanted to plug two festive things you can still check out from us. One is the Spotify playlist of medieval-ish or related moody Christmas music I put together. You can search Spotify for a playlist called MDT Christmas, and you should find it. A link is also at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. 
And by the way, you can email me there at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. You can also follow us on Instagram now, where we are Medieval Death Trip, all one word. This whole month, I've been running a daily advent calendar on Instagram, uh, the second festive thing I wanted to highlight. It gives you a daily image or set of images drawing from a mix of both authentic medieval manuscript images and unusual images generated by Dali from my prompts. It's been a lot of fun to do, though Instagram is telling me that only about 15 people are actually seeing it each day. Uh, So if you've missed out, you can find all the days so far through our Instagram profile, Medieval Death Trip. Next year, I'll be smarter and actually hashtag the next calendar with a unique identifier so you'll be able to follow it that way too. We're also still hanging in there on Twitter, where we are at MDT Podcast. And as I mentioned before, if you want to give the gift of financial support to the show, you can do that for just a dollar a month at Patreon, where we are patreon.com slash MDT Podcast. Being a patron gets you access to bonus audio content, including a whole audiobook of Jordanus's Wonders of the East. I'd like to shout out the recent donation from Chris. Thank you so much for your support. I do plan to be back with one more episode, episode 99, before the new year, uh, but we'll see how that shakes out in actual practice. Until then, happy holidays, safe travels, be careful about what advice you take from spirits, and may all your holiday meals be dropped from the sky by an eagle. And thanks for listening.